you would take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter number 14. John's Gospel, chapter number 14. We are continuing a series we've called The Doctrine of Christmas, where we highlight doctrines which are foundational for our understanding of the magnitude of what God has done during the Christmas season in having sent His only begotten Son that he would clothe himself in flesh and dwell in our midst. Last week we talked about the incarnation of Christ and how the birth of Jesus is not the beginning. Indeed, he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Jesus always was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Rather, it is that during the Christmas season we are celebrating the tremendous act of grace in that God would step forth from heaven, that he would condescend, that he would come down, that he would humble himself in the likeness of men, dwelling in the midst of a people who would not receive him, that he would die the death that we deserve to die, having lived the life that we should have lived, be raised from the grave the third day to grant the grace that we have never, ever deserved. This morning, what I'd like for us to talk about is the doctrine of the Trinity. Nice, light subject for a Sunday morning. Here's the response that I typically get in conversation with folks about the Trinity. One of two troubling responses. Either, either one, indifference, as though the doctrine of the Trinity is not terribly significant, usually because we don't understand it. By the way, just because we don't understand a biblical truth or we don't like a biblical truth does not discount its truthfulness. That's how we evaluate truth in our culture today. If we don't like it or we don't understand it, we dismiss it. That doesn't change the fact that it's true. And then on the other side, there's the idea that, that this, this is just not a critical doctrine. This is just not terribly important because we can't understand it again. We just don't worry with these things too much. And often coupled with that is, is a, a willingness to be pulled in by what I believe to be blatant false teachers. If you'll evaluate your preacher's doctrine of the Trinity, it will help you to evaluate their faithfulness to the Bible. This is an essential Christian doctrine. But as it's often the case, we're, we're drawn, um, or, or take for granted rather, foundational things. We're, we're drawn to things that uh, sort of resonate with us, things that we can get our head around, things that may uh, appeal to the eye in certain ways. If you invite someone over to visit your home during the Christmas season, you're going to show them the externals. You're not going to cut out a piece of the sheetrock and show them the, the walls, the, the inner structure. You're not going to pull back the floor covering to show them the foundation. But, but those are essential to the house, right? For, for, you, for you guys, you'll watch the football games. The, the bowl season is upon us, and you'll watch them. You're going to follow the ball because it's exciting to you. But well, where the game is really won is in the trenches on the line of scrimmage, and you're not going to watch them. You're just going to watch where the ball goes. Often, the things that we take for granted are the most essential. The doctrine of the Trinity is one of those essentials that's often taken for granted. And I think understanding something of the doctrine of the Trinity will help us to appreciate and to take delight in the amazing grace that God has shown us in the Christmas season celebrated and that he sent his only son in our place. John 14, 7 through 31 
uh, will help us with our efforts this morning. If you found your way in your copy of God's Word to John 14 and 7, I would invite you now to stand out of respect and honor for the reading of His Word. John 14 and verse 7, the Bible says, Jesus speaking here in verse 7, If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord said, Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe me because of the works themselves. I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will see me no longer. But you'll see me. Because I live, you will live too. In that day, you'll know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Judas, though not Iscariot, said to him, Lord... How is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the father will send him in my name will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't give to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to the Father because the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. I'll not talk with you much longer because the ruler of the world is coming. He has no power over me. On the contrary, I'm going away so that the world may know that I love the Father. Just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Get up, Jesus says. Let's leave this place. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that this morning, Father, Son, and Spirit, you are at work in the midst of your people and on behalf of your people to save and to sanctify for the glory of your name forever. 
We ask that you would do this great work, this greatest of all works, that in the next moments you'd be pleased to reveal yourself through your Son, through the drawing and the conviction of your Holy Spirit, that you would take up residence in the hearts of those gathered here, that some would be saved, that the fame of Jesus might sound forth. We pray these things in the authority and the power of his name. Amen and amen. You may be seated. You have in your outlines this morning seven very simple, straightforward statements. I want to note here at the front end of our teaching time that those seven statements are not original to your pastor. Now, I also want to note that when it comes to teaching the doctrine of the Trinity, you don't want to have any interest in originality. This is a timeless doctrine about which great care and caution has been exercised through the centuries to make certain that we speak with precision concerning the character of our God. So what I'd like to do in the beginning of our time together is to work through those seven statements just briefly, and then we'll teach the text, we'll study the text together, and what you'll see, not in sequence, but in a variety of ways, these sentences, these very clear, short, succinct statements of truth concerning the Trinity affirmed in the text of Scripture that we're going to be studying together. So if you would, look for a moment at your outline, number one. God is one. This is an inescapable biblical truth. There is but one God. Deuteronomy 6.1 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is written into the constitution of God's person and character. He is one. As followers of Jesus, we believe in one God. One God. Number two, the Father is God. The, the Father is God. God the Father is Lord over all creation. He is God. Number three, the Son is God. Jesus is God. The Bible says he is the image of the invisible God. He is the only begotten of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word is Jesus. Over and over and over again throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he and the Father are one, that he is God. We're familiar with the seven I am statements of Jesus in the gospel of John, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I am the door, the gate to the sheepfold, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. The language of I am resounds in each of those seven statements. And it calls to our memory the encounter that Moses has with God at the burning bush where God reveals himself to Moses in a special way. And he says to Moses, I am. That's my name. It always has been and it always will be. But beyond these simple statements of Jesus, I am the bread of life, etc., there are some standalone I am statements. Jesus walks on water and by night comes to the boat that carries the disciples and they're stricken with fear. And they wonder who it is. And Jesus says simply, I am. John 4, at 
the Samaritan well as he engaged in conversation with the Samaritan woman of all things. Jesus says simply of himself, I am. When he says to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, in John 8, they are confounded at this statement. And Jesus responds very simply, I am. It, it resonates with his Jewish audience. It may be missed in our English efforts at understanding the scripture, but there is no mistaking the reality that's set forth in the, in the gospel of John and every other book of the Bible. Jesus, the Son of God, is God. Number four, the Holy Spirit is God. In John 16, 14, and 15, for you note-takers, it's abundantly clear that there is a oneness that exists between the Spirit and the Son, between the Spirit and the Father. Number five, the Father is not the Son. There are clear distinctions between the persons of Father and Son in the Scripture. The clearest example of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying on the night before his crucifixion. And he says, Father, if there's a way, may this bitter cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but, but yours. And Jesus drinks the bitter cup of God's wrath. There is a oneness in essence that exists, Father, Son, and Spirit. And yet distinct, distinctions between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, are not the same. In fact, the, the last three statements in your simple sentences there, the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. Now, often you'll find yourself in conversation with people about the Trinity, and someone will very cleverly have an illustration of the Trinity. L let, me just, let me just tell you, there are no illustrations for the Trinity. And if you come and say, Brother Wade, I have this great illustration of the Trinity, I'm going to say... I think you might be a heretic and we need to set up some counseling. That's how I'm going to respond to that. There simply are no illustrations for the Trinity. I have, I have friends from, without time, from uh, throughout time in ministry who get a real kick out of sending me the latest illustration of the Trinity just to get under my skin a little bit. The other night we were sitting around and Trey came downstairs and he said, Dad, I know that you said that there's no illustration of the Trinity, but I just, I got to try one out on you. I was thinking about this. He's wrestling with it, you know. And he said, I've got this stuff upstairs in the bathroom. It's, it's, it's shampoo and body wash and conditioner all in one, <laughs> which is a total boy thing, right? No, son. No, no, it's not. It's not. I promise you don't have an illustration for the Trinity. Because there is nothing like it in all the world. You don't have a point of reference for understanding the Trinity. In fact, there is an element of mystery here that you're going to have to embrace by faith. The goal here this morning is not to give you a comprehensive list of all the truths regarding the person of the Trinity, but to affirm in these seven statements what the Bible affords us the ability to understand. And to embrace by faith the unresolved tension, the mystery that exists in the face of these seven statements with a gladness of heart that the Trinitarian God of heaven is on our side. He is at work in the world around us for our salvation, our sanctification, and for the glory of his name. So you tuck away those seven statements, and I want us to work through this, uh, this, this passage, and you'll see affirmations of these seven statements. Now I want you to note 
that John 14, 7 through 31 is not primarily about the Trinity. The goal of Jesus is to speak a word of exhortation and encouragement to the disciples on the verge of his death. John 14, 1 begins that classic passage that many of you know well. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house are many mansions. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away and prepare that place, I'll come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. Jesus is preemptively consoling the disciples because his death is just around the bend. Which means not only the death of their Lord and Savior, it means perhaps in a more pressing way for them, the death of their dear friend. Jesus said, before the time comes, before all of this happens as it will, I want to speak a word of, of comfort, of consolation to you so that you're ready for what you might experience. In the process of doing so, he, he employs, he helps them to understand how each person of the Trinity is at work for their good and the glory of the Father. And I want you to see as we study this passage together, that it's not just the Father, it's not just the Son, it's not just the Spirit, but the fullness of the Godhead is at work for the salvation of God's people. That the Godhead is at work for the good of God's people. That the Godhead has been deployed. That the name of Jesus might be known to the uttermost parts of the world. John 14, beginning in verse number 7. The Bible says, if you know me, you also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and yet the distinctions in person remain. He is the image of the invisible God. He is a better revelation of God than we have anywhere else in the cosmos. In verse 8, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Philip wanted this kind of Mount Sinai experience where there was rumbling and thunder from heaven and a, a great cloud of glory that descended, this great miraculous manifestation of the presence of God. And yet Jesus responds to him in verse 9, Have I been among you all this time without your knowing me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. The only way to see the Father is through the person of Jesus Christ. The only way that you will ever see the Father is through Jesus Christ. The only way that any man, woman, boy, or girl will ever see the Father is through Jesus Christ. Jesus says in verse 10, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his work. And so the Father abides within the Son, and yet there's a distinction, a distinction between Father and Son. And verse 11 says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Believe because of the power of the works that I myself have performed. 
It dawned on me this week how much correlation exists between the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, which we mentioned a moment ago, and the seven signs in the Gospel of John. There's perfect symmetry about John's Gospel. Seven I am statements, which is the complete number, and seven signs. For instance, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and soon thereafter feeds 5,000 with two fish and five loaves on the plains of Israel. He says, I, I am the resurrection and the life. And to a dead Lazarus, he says, arise and come forth. Over and over, there are these examples of how Jesus is working miracles in order to verify the power he enjoys as the only begotten Son of God. If for no other reason, believe because of what you have witnessed in me, Jesus says. And I think one of the most compelling evidences of the power of the gospel is the work that God does in us. The testimony that we have of how Christ has changed our life. How the old has become new. How the dead has been brought to life. How the blind has gained sight. How the sin, sick, and corrupted has become a new thing by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verses 7 through 11 teach us that the Father sent the Son in order to reveal himself. If you want to know the Father, you must know his Son, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. Jesus says, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus says, and perhaps your eyes already caught the statement, greater works than these by faith in me. He says again in verse number 12, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I think that catches the eye because we can read that in such a way as to suggest that we're going to enjoy the same kind of miracle power that Jesus enjoys. The capacity to one-up Jesus' signs performed here in the Gospel of John. If your goal is to outdo Jesus and you call 6,000 people together for your Christmas gathering, try to feed them with two fish and five loaves, you're going to have a hungry gathering and you're going to be very disappointed in the power that you enjoy. When Jesus speaks of greater works than these, he's not speaking of those things that catch our attention or fall under the banner of signs and wonders. He's speaking of his greatest work. Jesus says, greater works than these you will do. Surely the gospel would sound forth through those disciples, and the gospel sounds forth through us as disciples, even 2,000 years removed from this promise from heaven. Surely greater works than these are wrought through the voice, through the testimony, through the proclamation of, of God's people as the dead are brought to life by faith in Jesus Christ at the preaching of the gospel. There's the promise of empowerment here that we would go forth as ambassadors for Jesus. That the greatest miracle, the miracle of everlasting life, the miracle of new life in Jesus would be performed through the power of his spirit and the faithfulness of God's people. Here Jesus helps us to see that because the Father has sent the Son, 
we now have access to the Father. After promising greater works than these, Jesus says all of this comes about because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Ask me anything in my name and I will do it. People have strange ideas in our day and age about prayer. People pray in weird ways in my estimation. People like to say things on social media like, sending my thoughts and prayers to you or to your family. It's an exercise in futility. Except your prayers be sent to the Father through Jesus Christ. They're no more than private murmurings. Jesus said, if you pray to the Father through me, because God sent me, because I have finished the work and ascended to the right hand of God, there is an access to the Father, through the Son, that is only enjoyed by those who've come by faith to the Son. Y'all with me this morning? Because of what Jesus did for us, which, by the way, is not finished even at the resurrection. It's finished at His ascension to the right hand of God. Jesus says, because I've come down in my condescension, and because I have gone up in my great glory, You, as a follower of Jesus, have direct access to the Father. We think sometimes that this business of prayer is something that we all enjoy arbitrarily. It's a right of humanity. But it's not, friend. It's a great privilege that we enjoy by the power of Jesus' name. When we pray in Jesus' name, that's not a courteous way to end our prayer time. It is the invocation of the name above all names. The power of heaven is invoked when we pray in Jesus' name. Jesus says, pray to the Father through me. And what you ask the Father, I'll be pleased to give so that the Father is glorified in the Son's graciousness in giving you all things and not withholding any good gift. Whatever you ask, Jesus says, pray in accordance with my will in the context of the Gospels and I'll be pleased to grant this great gift for the glory of my Father. Oh, isn't that good? God has sent His Son. And because He sent the Son, we have access to the Father. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I told the early service, and this remains true, I, I try to abstain from a great deal of social commentary because I have a very limited amount of time with you on the Lord's Day, and I'd much rather spend it talking about the Bible than the mess that we see around us in the world. But what, one, of, one of the troubling trends in our culture to me is, is how, how carelessly and how loosely we use the language of love. We just say, we, just, we love one another, we love, we love, and it sounds spiritual. So we, we just throw it around, and, and I suppose for believers there ought to be a modicum of love in our hearts for every person that we interact with. But when Jesus speaks of love, especially in this context, he's speaking of something with some depth. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Husbands, if you love your wives, it'll shape the way you interact with them. Wives, if you love your husbands, it'll shape the way you interact with them. Children, if you love your parents, it will shape the way you interact with with your parents. I'm coming more and more to understand that if you really want to know what a person believes, 
you can almost entirely disregard what they say with their mouths. It's not about their theology. It's about their ethics. If you want to know what a person believes, you watch what they do. You watch how they behave, how they conduct their business. Jesus says, and this is not the only time Jesus says it, if you love me, obey my commands. Now, a, a word of, of grace is fitting here. There are times when in our sinfulness, we conduct ourselves in a way that's out of the character of who we are. One of the things that you ought to be aware of is that you have the capacity to be unfaithful to the people that you love the absolute most in your life. And at this point, we say amen and hallelujah at the amazing grace of our God who loves us. When we are faithless, he is faithful. Jesus said, if you love me, obey my commandments. In verse 16, he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Did you notice here under the heading of Trinity that Jesus said, I'm going to send the spirit and he's going to be in you. And then later he says, I am in you. He makes no distinction. There is a distinction between the persons, but there is a oneness that allows Jesus to say that where the Spirit is, I am also. That where the Spirit is, the Father is likewise. Jesus says, when I leave, I'm going to send the Counselor. The Father is going to give you the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, to come and to abide within your heart and to guide you. He's uh, referred to here as the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you know him. He's going to abide within your heart, and he's going to help you to discern the truth. Now, I want to tell you a couple of things about the way the spirit of God guides us in discerning truth, how he helps us to understand the truth. He always does so in a manner consistent with the scripture. The Spirit of God guides us to understand the Scripture. There is an element of reading the Bible that's a bit of a learned skill, much like reading comprehension in general. But if you really want to understand the truths of the Scripture, you cannot do that apart from the presence of the Spirit of God. If you want to know what the Bible says, you cannot make that final determination apart from the indwelling presence of God's Spirit. Except the spirit go before, you have in your natural man no capacity for understanding the things of God. The natural man cannot discern the things of the spirit. This is what the Bible plainly teaches. Even as God goes before in salvation, conditioning our hearts, opening our hearts to receive the gift of faith, he goes before us in our reading and study of the scripture that we might understand and know what the Bible plainly says about right, wrong, good, and evil, the character of God as opposed to the wickedness of man. The spirit of God is essential to our understanding of the scripture. You simply cannot understand the scripture apart from the presence of the spirit. When, uh, during doing doctoral work, most of my engagement with other scholars in biblical studies was with liberal scholars who did not believe sometimes in the existence of God and almost never in the authority of the Bible. And you find yourself reading, and, and it do, that does not negate their brilliance, by the way. Sharp minds, God having gifted them in ways that they're totally unaware of. 
and, and you're reading along, and there may be a nugget of truth here, a nugget of truth there, just a beautiful treatment of the language and the background and the context of this passage, and, and it makes you wonder, how can they spend this much time with the Scripture and not see what is before them? It's confounding, except that we have the answer. The difference is the Spirit of God. The difference is the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life that helps us to understand the spiritual implications of the passage that is before them. Now, here's the truth of this section. Because the Father has sent the Son, and because the Son has died in our place, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of God, not only do we have access to the Father through Jesus, but we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Upon his ascension to the right hand of God, Jesus and the Father send forth the Spirit to abide within our hearts. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Not only is the Godhead at work for our salvation, the Godhead is at work for our sanctification. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not exclusively about what happens when we die in the sweet by and by. It is by the presence of the Spirit of God, the sanctifying work of God in our life about what God intends to do both in the by and by and in the here and now. God sends us His Spirit to sanctify us, to make us over in the image and likeness of His Son, Jesus. And the Spirit of God is the person of the Trinity that seems to bear the bulk of the load with regards to our sanctification and, self and safekeeping in the here and now. Look at verse 19. Here Jesus says, in a little while the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father. I also will love him and reveal myself to him. In verse 22, the Bible says Judas, helpfully qualified here by the fact that this is not that Judas, not Judas Iscariot, the good Judas, not the bad one, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it you're going to reveal yourself to us and not the world? How will we see you, yet the world around us has no ability whatsoever to see you? And Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The one who doesn't love me will not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but is from the father who sent me. I have spoken these things to you while I remain with you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. Jesus says, Philip, the way you're going to see me and the world will not see me is that you're going to see me not with eyes of sight, but with eyes of faith through the presence of my spirit in you. Father, Son, and Spirit come to abide within us by faith in Jesus through the operation of the Holy Spirit of God. That comforter, that counselor, by faith in Jesus, comes to abide in your heart to guide you in understanding truth. And then Jesus says, furthermore, to remind you of the truth of God's Word. 
Not only does the Spirit help us to navigate and understand the Word of God, it helps us to be reminded of the Word of God at opportune moments in our life. One thing that I see happening educationally in our world is that rote memory is out of vogue. We used to memorize things in school back in the dark ages, the 90s when I was in school. We memorized things. And now we have the tree to the knowledge of good and evil in our hands. So we Google things. We don't memorize them. But I want to warn you about that approach to education. The word of God is not intended to operate that way. The psalmist said, I have hidden your word in my heart. That is, I have memorized your word so that I might not sin against you. Memorizing the scripture gives you a good well to draw from as the spirit of truth guides you, showing the difference between good and evil, right and wrong, and various other operations in your life. Hiding the word of God away in your heart gives a good opportunity, a wholesome experience from which, or a deep well from which the spirit of God might draw in guiding and directing you. Now, I hear people say, the Spirit has led me to do all kinds of things. And I just want to note here, this might be helpful to a few, that the Spirit of God will not lead you to do anything that is in conflict with the Word of God. In fact, I don't believe there to be any new revelations from God whatsoever. Anything that is revealed by the Spirit that is found in the Word is redundant. And anything revealed by the Spirit that is not in the Word of God is heterodoxy. We have what we need from Genesis to Revelation. We need only to lay hold of the Word of God He has so graciously given us. Hide it away in your heart that you might not sin against God. Jesus says, you're going to see me with eyes of faith. Because upon my ascension, I'm going to send the Spirit to be, a, to be at work within you, to abide in your hearts, to guide you and to keep you against that day. Now look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I don't give it to you as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or fearful. You've heard me tell you I'm going away and I'm coming to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced that I'm going to my Father, because the Father is greater than I. Let's just put a little pause there. What does Jesus mean when he says the Father is greater than I? Let me tell you first what he does not mean. He doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow a little less than the Father. Jesus, the Son, is no less God than the Father. The Spirit is no less God than the Father. He's speaking here in terms of authority. It's plain throughout Jesus' earthly ministry that Jesus is subject to the authority of the Father. That the Father calls the shots both for Spirit and Son. That's what this is all about. This is why the words of Jesus in Matthew 28 at the Great Commission are so powerful. We overlook this, but there's great strength to what Jesus says there. And this is really what everything we talked about last week in Philippians 2 was about. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. 
In Philippians 2, the Bible says that because Jesus made himself subject to the Father, subject to governing authorities in the here and now, made himself vulnerable to the attacks of mankind, because he drank the bitter cup of God's wrath against us, because of Jesus' humiliation, the Father was pleased to exalt him. So much so that Jesus has been given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess, both in heaven and on earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is, this is, this is kingdom ethics, by the way. You, you, you make yourself subject to the Father. And you trust the power of his exaltation in due time. That, that little principle, which I'm, I'm not sure was stressed well enough in last week's message. We talked about James 4 and 3, where the Bible says God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. When God gets ready to exalt his people, he won't need our help to do it. The expectation that God has for us is to walk humbly before God and man. And in due time, he'll do the business. He'll take care of the work of exaltation. The pattern is firmly established for us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 29 says, I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you may believe. I won't talk with you much longer, because the ruler of the world is coming. You ready for this next sentence? He has no power over me. Isn't that beautiful? On the contrary, verse 31 says, I'm going away. So that the world may know that I love the Father, just as the Father commanded me, so I do. Because the Father has sent the Son, because the Son has finished the work of salvation and ascended to the right hand of God, because Father and Son have sent forth the Spirit to abide within us, we may have the indwelling of the Spirit, we may have peace with the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is that the Trinitarian God of heaven is at work for your salvation. Now let's note a couple of things here. There's nothing left over for us to manage. Y'all with me? The Trinitarian God has shouldered the burden of the salvation of God's people. There's no leftover work that needs to be done. The, the Father has sent forth the Son. The Son has provided the substitutionary sacrifice. He has performed the atoning work of the high priest. He has ascended to the right hand of God. The Spirit abides in us, performing the sanctifying work the Father is well pleased in. We are loving Christ, acting out that love by serving Him faithfully, obeying His commandments. There's not a lot left for us to do outside of making ourselves subject to the Lordship of Jesus over our life so that on your best day, your best day is to be credited to the power of the Spirit at work in you. And that on your worst day, in spite of your faithlessness, in spite of your foolishness, there is rest for our weary souls because the God of heaven has worked out our salvation through his Son, Jesus Christ. There's peace in this, isn't there? Oh, there's peace. Last week we talked about, and I, I hope... I hope this sort of settled into our hearts, and I hope it steers the contemplations of our hearts through the Christmas season. 
that God has come down, that the, the transcendent God has condescended, dwelt in our midst. And I, and I hope that our discussion of the, the Trinity, the fullness of the Godhead ha, has been employed for your salvation and for mine. Are y'all amazed at that the way I am? That, that God, and not just part of God, but all of God, is at work for our salvation. By His very Word, He spoke the world into existence. But every person of the Godhead was exercised actively in the working out of our salvation. It is an incredible thing. And brothers and sisters, for every person here this morning, if you would make yourself subject to the lordship of Jesus Christ, that is, if you would accept by faith what God has done for you through his son, if you do, it'll be through his spirit. We're affirming the Trinity at every turn. If you will embrace what God has done for you through Christ's finished work, there is for you the forgiveness of sin and the promise of life everlasting. You can't find that anywhere else. The greatest gift that has ever been given was given in the sending forth of God's only son, Jesus Christ. Oh, and I hope that you know him and I hope that you love him. And I hope that your love for him manifests itself in your faithful acts of obedience with each passing day of your life. I, I, hope, I hope that you've taken note here of the, of the mission of the Trinitarian God. The interest that God the Father has in sending forth his Son, sending down his Spirit, that many would know that Jesus is Lord and King. For you armchair theologians and students of the Bible who are interested in such things, here's my challenge to you. Go through your New Testament and find the 75 times that the name Father, Son, and Spirit is invoked together. Notice that there's a set pattern there. And those patterns reflect the context in which they are found. Father, Son, and Spirit is always listed in a missional context where the Father is sending the Son, the Son is sending the Spirit, and the aim of the Godhead is evangelism, to go and to ensure that the world knows. Church folks, as you go and bear witness to the power of Jesus in your life, the Godhead goes with you. The, the, the ability that you have to do what you do is not your own. If you've got shortcomings, if you've got misgivings, if you struggle to get over the awkward pause at the beginning of every gospel conversation, you rest assured you're right where you need to be, at a place of fully understanding that this is business that's bigger than you can manage. And Jesus said, fear not. When you stand before kings and princes, I'll give you the words to speak. See, this touches every area of our life because it is such a foundational doctrine of the faith. I, I, I hope that you'll give strong consideration to who God is, the place he holds in, in your heart and life, that this morning you would pray as Jesus has instructed us to pray, Lord, may your will be done in us even as it is in heaven.